You're listening to GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers, now available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. GDA Podcast showcases insightful conversations from the best thought leaders, educators, policy experts, motivators, and storytellers on the keynote speaking circuit today. Want today's guest at your next event? Call GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or visit gdaspeakers.com. And now, here's this episode of GDA Podcast with hosts Scale and Kyle Davis. Enjoy. to make matters more interesting. <laughs> Welcome to today's episode of GDA Podcast. I am so looking forward to this because it's unique in that we are actually on location and we are recording today's podcast from the Abby Farron Design Studio. So you may hear the hum of sewing machines in the background, but we selected this to really be here to absorb the creative spirit to absorb the entrepreneurial spirit. And I think I would like to start there by saying that I met Abby as a fellow member of EO, the Entrepreneur Organization. And I was immediately drawn to her creativity, her philanthropy, uh, and her designs. I can remember Abby coming here to Southside Lamar, meeting you on a Sunday, and I felt like I found my person. You, you know, your tagline is that you make clothes for the person, not the hanger. And I just remember that afternoon, and I was so happy. So I think what we should do is just kind of start with your story. You know, how did you get into all of this? And maybe share a little bit, not only about the design aspect, but what it's like to be an entrepreneur, to have a 16-year-old business. 16-year-old business. Wow, I don't even feel much older than 16. It's crazy when you say that. But um, yeah, I kind of feel a little bit like Alice in Wonderland. I fell into this, you know, this backwards. And where am I kind of looking around going, I can't believe this is where my life ended up as I started my career thinking I was going to be the next Barbara Walters and working for Jim Lair in Washington, D.C. So that was my first job out of college. And After about three years in D.C., I just realized that I needed more of a creative outlet. Um, So I moved to Los Angeles and started working at Paramount Pictures with my broadcasting degree. It was really easy to get – and the resume of Jim Lair. um, It was really easy to get work um, through a temp agency so I could kind of figure out where I wanted to be. So I spent a year temping in all the big studios and – ABC, NBC. Um, I got to be in Les Moonves' office for three months. It was really exciting, but um, I wasn't making that much money. So I start. I pulled. I got invited to all these really cool red carpet parties. You know, I was 22. The world was open to me, and um, I was like, I can't wear these. You know, Jim Lair outfits. I was wearing my Ann Taylor suits. Those are not working for a red carpet Hollywood deal. So I um, got out my old sewing machine, dusted it off, and. Um, I'd been sewing since I was young, so it just kind of gone to the wayside and started making my own clothes. So, at, at what point? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs like discover this at some point. But at what point did you realize that the the these temp jobs at the studios and all the other like kind of movie work that you were doing was, you know, costing you? Whether it be costing you money from designs that you could be selling you uh, selling or costing you because it was taking you away uh, from what your true passion was. At what point did you realize that you really needed to, you know, fully dive in? 
Well, it was such an interesting thing because at first I was just sewing because I wanted to have cute outfits to wear on the red carpet and to go to these cool parties. And then people kept asking me and it suddenly triggered like, you mean instead of sitting at a desk and like watching life go by outside the window, I could have the freedom to do my own thing and do what I'm so passionate about. Um, so it was probably a year into my job at Paramount Pictures. I ha- I was working in the um, international sales division, which is far, far from what I, you know, any kind of creative element. Um, it was really interesting to watch the hustle and bustle on the Paramount lot, but it just wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling. And I remember like looking out the window every day thinking, life is happening out there and I'm strapped to this desk. <laughs> it was awful. So about a year into it, I... Um, I had enough interest in my designs and I just quit my job and off I went. When did you start hiring employees and when did you get your first big deal where people actually wanted you to fulfill an order? So my first few clients were um, celebrities and unfortunately they don't like to pay when you're first blooming artists. They were like, I'll wear your clothes and you know, tell people about you. And so, which is great once you have a distribution, but if you don't have any other, you know, you bought five yards of silk and you use two of it on that dress and now she's not going to pay for it. It's kind of like, well, this is a rough business model. (laughs) So it took a little while, but um, I was really blessed. I got a bunch of press right away. And so then I made a sample set, got in my car and drove door to door and probably opened, I got the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. Um, I got a store in a few stores in Florida. I met this girl who was like, loved my designs. And she's like, I'm going to hit the road for you. So she was hitting the road on the East coast. I was hitting the road on the West coast and literally door to door. I'd get my 30 orders. I'd go back home and I'd sew them all myself. So that went on for about two years of torturous sewing night and day. So there was a funny story that you told uh, at my mom's birthday party, uh, and it was involving the power of the word no. And at some point in time, you decided you're not going to give away free stuff anymore. Um, tell it if you want to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe you might want to leave names out. You know, no, you no, do. I'll tell it. Uh, they actually love this story. Um, so that was a few years later when I moved to Dallas and I was just done. I was done giving things away. I was done with like having my name in, you know, us weekly and in style magazine. And yeah, I could barely even like pay my bills. And, um, I'd also been through, which we'll talk about later, some really rough personal stuff that had really upside down my, my financial life. So, um, I, uh, got a call from this woman named Julie and she said, so I have a client who would like to wear your outfit to the Super Bowl. She found it at a boutique in Nashville, and her husband is the quarterback for the team. And we were wondering if you would like to gift her some outfits for the ESPYs and for some upcoming events. And I said, no, it sounds like they're doing pretty well. If her husband it turned out it was Kurt and Brenda Warner, who I'm now very dear friends with. <laughs> um, if her husband is uh, playing for the NFL, I think they're doing okay. And I have, you know, some really important philanthropies that I support. And so she will be doing a good deed by buying my clothes, but I can't gift it to her. And Julie was like, okay, got it. And went back to Brenda. I completely forgot this story happens. And fast forward, I'm in um, Kurt and Brenda's home this summer working on Brenda's outfits for Hall of Fame because she was dressing him. And um, she said, and they're they're working on getting a movie deal. I don't know how much of that is public, but um, 
the the screenwriter was interviewing them, and so they, he wanted some other people's testimonials. So I so Brenda said, "Well, let me tell you about Abby and why Abby is such a close part of my life." And she tells this story, and I'm mortified. Going, that was how we, <laughs> that was how we got to know each other. But um, yeah, she Brenda loved it, and she. Um, said, you know what? That's my girl. She believes in herself. And it was such a good lesson even now because I still feel like there's a little bit of that, like, pick me, like me. And it's kind of, it's great to know that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of transferableness. I guess that's a word, transferableness. But uh, anyways, in a lot of industries, they, you know, that's the freemium. It's like, hey, try this free. And then they want you to pay, you know, for you know, Apple Music or something like that. Uh, and so it's, it's a good thing to know that you don't have to just give away stuff for free. If you believe in what you're doing, charge for it. I mean, yes. It's the right thing to do. And entrepreneurs, you know, it's your business and it's your heart and soul. And so it's like sometimes you think, well, these people of influence like it. Mm-hmm. I should give it to them, but they actually value it more was my lesson when you don't. You mentioned that that Kurt and Brenda became great friends. And I know I saw something um, in recent months where you were at the NFL Hall of Fame. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I so you took your father. I you? did. Yeah. My dad was my date. He's a huge football fan since um, in my whole life. We would watch football together on Sundays. So it was really fun. I got to take him to the Super Bowl a few years ago and then got to take him to hall of fame this year as my date. And, um, yeah, I, I dressed Brenda. We created her whole wardrobe for the week. It was a really big deal. She's one of only two wives that have ever been asked by their husbands to put on their gold jacket, which is, you know, they get to pick the most important person in their life. So she was up there on stage with him and it's really cute. Cause usually the person exits right after they put on the jacket and he grabbed her hand and kept her up there oh. the whole time. They're, they're a really neat family. That's awesome. I I was thinking of something else, Abby, when you said that when you were first getting started, you know, you'd get the 30 orders and then you would go home and make them. And I know, you know, I think you may even know Michael Gerber personally, but, you know, his book is so powerful for all of us entrepreneurs, you know, the e-myth where we learn that there becomes this point where you have to work on your business, not in your business. Yes. So you want to talk a little bit about his influence on you and, yes. and how then you were able to scale into this magnificent operation you have today. <laughs> well, and it's really funny because Kyle asked the question earlier about my first employees and um, there were a few, you know, part-time sewers along the way. But one of my very first employees when I moved to Dallas after I'd won Texas Top Designer um, was Amethyst Maya, who is Michael Gerber's stepdaughter. Lucky me. She's still with me today, 10 years later. Um, So that was about six years in when I had, I I hired Margarita 12 years ago and she was my first sewer. And then Amethyst came on board um, as part of the design and production team. And so I remember, I mean, if you know the e-myth, the pie maker, I was the pie maker, my hair in a bun, crazy piles everywhere, frantically pedaling through life, like on a hamster wheel. And Michael and Luz Delia came in for a tour of my studio and I had no idea who he was or what the e-myth was. And I'm sure he was just like beside himself that this is who his daughter just decided to work for. But lucky me because he became a mentor and um, did the dreaming rooms with my whole team. Um, I did the e-myth course with him. Um, And still to this day, I actually need, I was, I just got an email today. I need to do a re-up and, you know, just refresh on what's going on now. So. Should we go back, uh, because we did skip forward, uh, talking about 
Brenda and Kurt, but should we go back and talk about the the troubles that you mentioned? Um, because I think they really shaped a lot of the decisions you've made about your culture in your company. So would you would like to talk a little bit about what happened in LA that led to you reinventing yourself and moving to Texas? Yes, I would, because I think it's really important. And um, I met a guy, one of my goals when I moved to LA, besides finding myself, was to get a California boyfriend. So stupid. <laughs> but anyway, that was a goal at 22. I wanted a guy with the spiky hair and the cool cars and all that. So it's terrible. I know, Kyle, it's bad. The spiky hair. just It just ugh. it's so bad. It reminds me of like Justin Timberlake circa like 2001. Yeah. Well, it that was, was 2001. Yeah. Perfect. Wow. That's exactly where we were. Denim on denim on denim. Yes. That. Okay. Yes. All good, of it. It's good look. As I wear my, I couldn't decide what vibe I wanted to be today, so I'm like super hipster, but I'm wearing my Dolores Park San Francisco shirt. So that's like, there you go. Yeah. The other side. It's more the granola, you know, Birkenstocks. That's more the style I've gone today. Yeah. (laughs) If I have a style. (laughs) But um, yes, anyways, I got what I asked for and then some. So I meet this guy, you know, Rico Suave, and he. um, Was that really his name? No, I'm teasing. (laughs) He was very <laughs> gullible here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> so anyways, no, that wasn't his name, but he was just, he sold me down the river with his charm and he was handsome and he had his degree from Harvard or so he said, I still to this day don't know what part of his story was or wasn't real, but the first year he just showed up for me and, you know, had everything I w- could ever imagine had the, um, would support me with my business, would bring me food while I was sewing all these orders. And I just hired my first part-time sewer and, you know, and then was giving me business advice. And the next thing I know, he's like, well, why don't you let me handle your finances? And I'm going, okay, great. Cause I hate those numbers. Please. You're smart and rich. Let's do, do this. So naive. I would ne- you know, it's been a great business. I've heard so many stories down the line later in people's business careers. That I feel like it was a great lesson to learn. Um, but a really hard one because he ended up maxing out my credit cards and then he was funneling all of his checks through my bank account. So it looked like I was making so much money. So my credit card limits got bigger and bigger. It was before 2008 when things crashed. And um, next thing I know, like suddenly we moved to San Francisco and he, um, my like Prince Charming overnight turned into my captor. I mean, I was literally couldn't breathe, couldn't eat, couldn't do anything without his explicit direction. No, Abby, you shouldn't have salad dressing on your salad because, you know, you're looking a little bit too fluffy over there. Oh, we need to go to the gym every day. Don't worry. I got you. You're going to be fine. But you you need to follow my program. And it was just like step by step in this whittling away of self-esteem, isolating me from my family, isolating me from my friends. And suddenly I was like living in a nightmare. Um, It was pretty awful. So I I remember at one point thinking, like, maybe I should just go jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, which was right down the road. Like, I ran by it every day, and I was like, that would be a quick end to this, which is really crazy that I went to that place. How did you eventually get out? So um, the average abuse cycle is around seven years. I feel really lucky that mine was only two. Um, Also, like, I just couldn't – I couldn't stand it anymore. So I I called my dad and – told him what was going on. And if anyone has seen my dad, he's a force to be reckoned with. He's Buffalo Bill uh, in the modern day with the huge handlebar mustache, six foot two. He played football in Wyoming, uh, University of Wyoming College. So he's a big man. Um, And I just called him and I told him what was happening. And I said, 
you know, he's, he's beaten me within an inch of my life several times. I, um, have had a gun held to my head. I'm not going to make it if you don't come. And he, my dad was on a plane that night. So, um, he helped me pack up and he wanted me to move back to Wyoming. And I just really didn't want to give up my dream. And, you know, this guy had been calling me a home, a home crafter for several years and making me feel like I'd gone from feeling like I was on top of the world to like my, um, I meant nothing. And I really was such a loser. And I was like, it was this driving force to, to be to, that that was wrong, that pushed me to, st- you know, move back to LA and, um, and continue my process. And then eventually I moved to Dallas, which was a great move for me because the city is just so supportive of entrepreneurs. What made you choose Dallas? Just out of pure curiosity. My cousin lived here and she was doing business and she said, Hey, Abby, um, I really would love to give you some business advice. And I was pretty desperate. I, I actually had told her, like, why can't I just come work for you? I'm sick of um, barely being able to make ends meet. I have no money to my name. I have all this credit card debt piled up. Like, I'm like, I'm totally trapped in this life that I've that I've created. And um, and she said, absolutely not. You're too talented. Come to Dallas. I'm going to help you. And so I set up shop in her garage and. Um, she was sharing a bedroom with her seven-year-old child, which is really exciting when you're 27 years old. You're like, where Sounds has my amazing. life gone? <laughs> you know, it was like amazing that she supported me like that. But you're also going, wow, I'm 27 years old and I've like, this is what I've accomplished. So um, a year into my time in Dallas, there was a contest. It was the initial contest um, sponsored by Stanley Korshak, which was Texas Next Top Designer. I entered that and I won. So that really changed my life. They gave me a loft rent-free here in Southside on the Mar. And um, that next year, um, just my life transformed. I was able to pay Amethyst instead of, you know, paying an, a rent in a in a design studio. So it was really exciting. Things really started transforming. And the Dallas community really stepped around me and got excited about the philanthropy philanthropic side that I had incorporated into my business. And so then I think like a year or so later from there, that's when uh, Kurt Warner's wife, and I'm forgetting her name, Brenda Brenda Warner wore your outfit. And then I guess things just kind of blew up overnight. And so you've, and you've mentioned this, but you have this philanthropic tinge or element to, to your business model. So let's talk about that for a moment. You know, what is it that, uh, sets your brand? I mean, there's so many different philanthropic brands. You can think of Tom's, if we're talking about fashion being one, there's, uh, the sock company Bombos or whatever. Yes. Um, so what makes yours different and unique and, and what does, um, your philanthropic, uh, goals work towards? Well, the fun thing is, um, a little fun fact is that I was first. So I, the case study on cause marketing was actually written uh, around my company because I was the leader in that space, which is kind of, I don't brag about that usually, but it is kind of a cool fact when you're bringing that up. Um, I, my sister came back not knowing I was in an abusive relationship and she was, a at the time, a, a humanitarian and a missionary and, um, really their, their angle was to go in and, um, just work with people and, love on people and help them create entrepreneurial um, avenues. And so she discovered this uh, group of women that had been sold by their parents into trafficking. Some of them unknowingly had been rescued out of it. And there was this village called guardian village where women were hand making different beads and bracelets. And my sister came back and had brought, bought all these bracelets and said, Abby, can you sell them with your clothes? 
And I was like, so I started selling them, but I was like barely making it myself at the time. And so it was kind of a, you know, it felt like more of like a pity purchase, like not something that was, that was sustainable. Like, how am I going to keep selling this same bracelet? I only have such a small pool of women and I don't have much distribution yet. So I, in the middle of the night, one night woke up and I thought, oh my gosh, they could make buttons for me. I could even put a button on a hang tag. That way, every time I sell a dress, I sell one of their buttons. And the more I sell, the more they sell. And it could just keep – that way, I'm not, like, dividing my energy. Our our forces are united. And that was how the Freedom Project began. Um, also, I did that before CNN. Just another little fun fact. The Freedom Project on CNN came out after – about two years <laughs> after my Freedom Project launched. Well, I mean, let's just you know, divide and conquer and set lines in the sand and just let people know you were first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that's nice to, to get the yeah. credit there. Um, so, so what does that allow you to do now? I mean, now, I mean, to, to be able to sell these buttons and other aspects of what they create, you know, what are you doing for them? Are you funding this village? Are you going out and rescuing these women? You know, what are you, what are you doing? Well, in the beginning, it was my way of healing because instead of focusing on my own problems, I immediately, you know, my sister didn't know what I was in when she came home. Um, she just, and it was kind of this, wow, other people are suffering way worse than I am. Like I am so lucky to live in America and to be living the life I am as horrible as it had kind of become. I was so blessed. So I asked, um, my sister to connect me and started working with the, the Guardian Village eventually led me to another group of women, um, Saksam in Cambodia. Uh, later that turned into Perna in Nepal. So I, I've continued to grow with these different organizations um, who have really, like, we partner. So it's become a very integral part of my business. All of my cashmere is made in Nepal um, by these women. Uh, my buttons, we have purses, we have all kinds of different projects. Right now we're developing a t-shirt project with the Nepali people. So basically it's kind of a few steps. We have a vocational training program. I've done a lot of um, consulting with them to help them set up because I started with less than nothing. I understand that lack and that need to have consistency and the needs and the also like you're not starting with this huge million dollar budget. How do you set up something that's functional and sustainable one sewing machine at a time and, and scale it? And so it's really cool when I go to Perna in Nepal and I see they came here and shadowed me for three weeks and shadowed different members of my team. And basically you would go to Nepal and see this. It's like a replica, even with the whiteboards on the walls. And um, Corbin graduated from MIT. He's the guy that's running the project in Nepal. That's um, an amazing guy. And, you can, I think I'd like him to come back and tweak ours a bit because he's so precise. But it's really cool to see how these people that come from such tough backgrounds, when they're given a chance to shine and to be trained and to have employment, you know, they ha it's not just handouts. And that's the huge difference between like a Tom's versus an Abbey Farron. We are creating sustainable lives for these people. It's not a shoe that's going to wear out. And I think it's great they do that, but it's not sustainable. I, I, when I did get the chance to meet Blake, I said, are these people making your shoes? And that's my, that was my challenge. Like have them make your shoes. Mm -hmm. That would be yeah, amazing. I can, I can only think of like one other company that does that. And it's this flip-flop company that uh, hires Afghan women that was created by army Rangers. Oh yeah. yeah. I know about them. They, yeah. they were on Shark Tank. Yeah. Yeah. Cool dudes. Uh, but uh, I think it's great because there's much more applicability because I can only wear flip-flops like four months a year. So. <laughs> right. That, and I'm actually realizing I have flip-flop sunburns right now on the top of my feet. So <laughs> it was 48 degrees when I walked my dog this morning. Uh, that, that That's great. So the, the touch or the reach has gone beyond 
everywhere else. How many countries and, and people have kind of gone through the system, or do you have an idea? Um, it's an estimate. Um, in Cambodia, I would guess around 1,000. In um, Nepal, they are interviewing 40 people today for 20 more jobs this week. They'll be adding 20 more people, and they've only been um, – they started – five years ago was when they came here and shadowed my studio. Um, so they have – I believe 80 on staff and they're adding 20 more this week. So it's pretty incredible to see the growth um, and they've gotten some great contracts. And my project with Cambodia has been over 15 years. What is amazing to see, the thing that excites me the most is the resilience of the human spirit. So once you get that spark, just like for me, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to help somebody else now that I'm free. That is kind of just a human spirit thing. Once you go through such brokenness and you've chose chosen to take the path of least res- of most resistance, which is being happy and compassionate and giving back. It's it feels so good that once you get that chance, you want to give it to others. And so we see that with our groups, like they, they create the momentum, they create the excitement, they create the, the charisma because they are so passionate and it's when you help one and then one helps 10 and then 10 help. Mm-hmm. 20 and it just keeps scaling. So it's kind of snowballs quickly. So, you know, from that, you're talking about your passion. Your passion has also led you to be the voice uh, or advocate for a lot of companies. Um, I don't know. Mary Kay Cosmetics. Mary Kay Cosmetics. And and you've also talked to a lot of organizations as well. Can you talk about what you're doing for Mary Kay? And then also when you do go speak, I know that you speak on a lot more than just domestic violence. And so we've, we've talked about that, but you know, what is the message that you're trying to bring to people? My message is really just about, um, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely focused on women because I am a women's clothing designer, but in a balanced way, we're not trying to say, okay, me too, poor me, I'm over here in a corner. We're saying, okay, some of those people, some of the women in our lives are in that me too, you know, that big movement that's happening right now. And I'm happy people are speaking, but my message is really about inspiring people to be their best and, and to do so in a balanced way where it's not like, um, out of harmony with the masculine. We're not saying men suck. We're not saying we don't like men. We're, we're saying, let's be in relationship with great men. Let's, um, hold men accountable. Let's hold ourselves accountable. Let's, it's just really inspiring ourselves to be the best leaders, the best entrepreneurs, the best mothers, the best sisters, the best wives. Um, just really digging into our, the depth of our character and choosing to be the best that we can for ourselves and our society. I don't know if that was concise enough. That might have been, that might need some tightening up, Kyle, if you can help me. (laughs) I I think it was fine. Okay. (laughs) I love it. And I I love, um, you know, I read somewhere that you are so committed to make sure that every garment that's sewed, whether it's, I think, about 80% here in this studio, we can hear the, the machines humming in the background, but that the, whether it's here or whether it's somewhere else that you outsource it, that people are happy and that they're paid a fair wage. And I, I just think that's so important, and it really speaks to your character. Thank you. Well, can I speak on this really quickly? It's the, the garment industry is one of the biggest contributors, aside from sex trafficking, um, one of the biggest contributors to abusive employment. And Americans don't realize that they are the biggest spenders. They are the ones consuming and, and keeping those slavery institutions in business. So I really encourage people to focus on who is making your clothes. And I don't say that as this mantra. I say this as literally you are contributing to people being enslaved when you support brands that are not ethical. 
Yeah, I mean, paying the little extra dollar amount, the the tax to make sure, if you want to call it a tax, to make sure that people are being treated properly and fairly is like so much more important in the long run than buying some cheap knockoff. Yeah, somewhere. fast fashion is the worst. It's awful. And it doesn't even last. So you're getting, you know, you may pay $300 for an Abbey Fair and Dress, for example, but you're going to have it in your closet for 10 years. So if you think of cost mm-hmm. per wear, you're not actually paying any more to buy a, a designer that is really conscious about where the clothes are being made and who's making them. I mean, I, I remember when I was living in New York City, my mom knows who I'm talking about, but I was dating this girl who was very fashion forward. She worked in Bergdorf Goodman and had access to all the really cool clothes and had just was very posh in the way she dressed. And I remember one time we went down to like Canal Street and we went to one of these fast fashion places and it was like it was on the runway a week ago and then now you could buy it for like 25 bucks. And she's like, Oh, it looks good. And it, it looked great. And then we went home and then she, like a week later she wore it and she like broke out into hives and then like this, <laughs> the seams busted and it was just, it was not, it looked good, but it just, it, it, it broke real fast. So yes. and I'm that's not, a perfect I, example yeah. of like, you get what you pay for and like somebody else probably paid too. Yeah. So good example, Kyle. I love it. I'm full of examples. <laughs> I have a similar example where, you know, everyone's bought the knockoff purse, you know, on Canal Street. I just want to say something. I lived in New York for five years. And the thing that I hated the most was when my mom would come and visit me and then go down to Canal Street and then go buy a knockoff purse. And I have real legitimate reasons as to why I'm anti knockoff purse. So I want to say that this story is a growing story for my mom. <laughs> But you can thank me for it, Abby. Okay, good. I'm so proud, Kyle. But the the big thing for me is I finally decided, okay, I've outgrown this. I'm going to go buy the real purse. And it costs so much more. And I remember saying to the person, like, why? And they said, well, it's been tested. And each strap can hold, I think, 25 pounds or something. Do you know seven years later, I'm still carrying that same purse every single day. I've never had to have it repaired. So to your point somebody's paying somewhere. <laughs> is that the beautiful Prada? No. Oh, it's, it's another a, it's one. A, it's a, Oops, I called you yeah. out. There might be a few of those <laughs> purses. No, those fake ones are gone. They're yeah. Gone. Oh, no. I, oh, I meant the, yeah. the full price the purses. Full, the full price ones. Oh, I yeah. know that's a full price Prada. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Don't yeah, worry. Yeah. I can spot that. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, I mean, my, my issue is like, it's just, it's the, and, and you see this in New York and it's not nearly as bad as it once was, but um, the people who sell it, they're they're not selling it because they want to. They're selling it because they're forced to. Like they, they have no other means of doing it, and that's just the street level here in the United States. And yeah. then you think about the warehousing issues and where they're living. And there's these horror stories in New York City about these like cage condominiums where people are living. It's just horrific. And then if you just think about it, you just backtrack it to like where these are made in Vietnam or China or you know some other country. And it's just horrific conditions. Yeah. You hear the stories of the factories collapsing. And, and it's also like the fake makeup, too. Have you, have you heard about all this stuff? Oh, I'm sure it's toxic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. They, they did like a sting on like some show and they were buying like fake MAC products and fake, you know, Kylie Jenner, this and that. And like women's faces were just breaking out. And they thought because they're saving, you know, $30, $40 or $100 on this or yeah, something like that. Yeah, but the cost of your skin being damaged for life. I mean, at, at, at the very least, it's like very cheap microdermabrasion or chemical peels or something like that. But, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you want that. <laughs> no. You know, I, I've been sitting here listening to you, Abby. Sometimes when someone's your friend, 
you know, you don't really get the whole picture until you sit in a different role. And I'm thinking how many times people ask us, you know, for female presenters and how many times people ask us for CEOs and how many times people ask us about entrepreneurs. And I'm just wondering, how do you balance it all? I mean, I know you have a son. I know family is very important to you. You've got all these philanthropic connections. You've got a thriving business. You have a flagship store. How do you do it all? You know, I'm still figuring that out, Gail, is the true answer. But um, I will say that, you know, experience is everything. So the more I experience, um, the more my team experiences with me and grows, you know, it's a growing process. So sometimes we may feel like we're still in the same stuff. And then we look at it and we're like, actually, it feels the same, but we have improved. And you can see those, you know, those benchmarks. Um, so it's uh, my tagline is persistence beyond what seems reasonable. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's the, the the driving force of my whole career. I shouldn't have continued after so many no's and doors closed. But I just never hear no as a real answer. So just like, okay, well, then there's a different way to do it. <laughs> so, and some- you always keep it real. I which do. I think is so wonderful. I have to share that last night, Abby and I went to hear one of our mutual friends speak. And Abby was like two minutes late. But she walked in. She goes, just thought you might want to know the designer had a wardrobe crisis. <laughs> And I was like, everybody needs to know that. Talk about perspective. That's awesome. Uh, Yeah, I had to change my outfit three times. Yeah. And that happens. Like, that's the thing is it's it's authenticity, I think, is so important. Um, My industry is not known for that. Um, It's like the fake it till you make it and always be glamorous. And there are parts of me that have to do that just because people won't take me seriously if I, like, show up in my pajamas, which I really would love to do sometimes. <laughs> I just wear a black V-neck and jeans every day. That's I mean, I that that's an idea, Kyle. Actually, it's a great idea. But Well, I think that's a, a good place for us to wrap up. But I think um, with that being said, authenticity is hugely important. And I really want to thank you for being authentic with us today and for taking the time and inviting us into your awesome studio, of which we'll take phenomenal pictures and post to the website. So thanks awesome. again. Awesome. Thank you guys thanks, so Abby. much. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. Visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned for more from GDA Podcast and GDA Speakers.